Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on pain management. Good morning, and thank you again for spending time uh, with us. We're going to be talking about ketamine use in palliative care. Uh, ketamine, we know, has been utilized, uh, off-labeled for uh, many years in palliative care, so hopefully we'll provide some clarity to when it might be appropriate to utilize and maybe times when you can, should consider alternative agents. So the objectives for ketamine, again, keeping things very straightforward, identify symptoms and conditions that might benefit from the administration of, of ketamine, and then recommend an appropriate regimen for a hospice or palliative care patient. So again, who should we utilize it in? And then once we utilize it, making sure we have a plan in place to ensure effective and safe utilization of, of ketamine. So I want to start off with the patient case. And then we'll revisit this at, at the end of, of, our, of our talk. 35-year-old patient needs treatment for comfort care, including pain, diarrhea, and depression. He's transitioning to inpatient hospice from a, from a hospital type of setting. Patient has uh, HIV, severe colitis, as well as chronic kidney disease. Prognosis is weeks to months, kind of uncertain. Uh, vitals, blood pressure has kind of been running um, high normal for a 35-year-old patient. And heart rate's a little high as well. Maintenance medications have been discontinued because we're going to be transitioning to a, a more focused comfort care. They're on a fentanyl patch for pain as well as hydromorphone PRN. So the idea is with this patient who wants comfort is complaining of significant distress from pain, from diarrhea, and well depression, is, is this something where you might consider the utilization of ketamine? Okay, and hopefully by the end of our talk today, you feel more confident with your answer. I know those who in the audience have a good sense, and those of you who are listening also have a good sense of whether you'd say yes or no. Hopefully what I'm doing is reaffirming your thought process and, and making that a little bit, little bit stronger. Okay? So is ketamine here to stay, or is it just a flavor of the month? Right? I felt like bringing in some ice cream samples and seeing, right, going from that way, right? Um, but as we look, um, those of us who have been practicing for a while um, have been fortunate enough to be in palliative care for a little over 10 years now, so you see things that come and go, right? Nebulized opioids um, kind of comes and goes. Topical medications like ABHR, ABH, all those things kind of ebbs and flow throughout our careers. And now with ketamine, is this one of those ebbs or flows or is it here to stay? Okay, so it's history. We know it's a rapidly acting IV dissociative general anesthetic. It is a C3 um, prescription. So what are the practical implications of a C3 prescription? Yeah, so it actually makes our life a little bit easier. So a C3 prescription can be called in and you can have refills. Yay! So from that standpoint, it makes things a little bit easier. We do know that ketamine can be misused and abused, though. Um, and uh, what's interesting is it's a phencyclidine der derivative. And we knew that like PCP, when it first came out, we saw a lot of analgesic effects with PCP when it came out on, um, into the market many years ago. Obviously, PCP is not used anymore, right? But it took a long time for folks to, to realize, you know, ketamine is related. I wonder if it has analgesic effects as well. And sure enough, um, you saw it being utilized um, in the 90s 
with increasing frequency. Its palliative care uses are, are all off-labeled. So, quick funny story about about ketamine. My, uh, we know what it's obviously it's heavily misused and abused, and oftentimes can be mis misused for a lot of reasons on the street. But my my wife is a special education teacher. When we lived in Las Vegas, she wanted to get a a, a license, special license plate. Um, and so she does uh, special ed, and her, her first name is Kenzie, last name is Calgren. She wanted to get a special K license plate. And I told her, probably not the best personalized license plate in Las Vegas to be having, right? <laughs> special K is the street name for ketamine, right? I'm like, we, we don't want that kind of traffic coming to our house, all right? Um, so just be aware that even it is a C3 for a reason, so you want to be using appropriate precautions with, with ketamine. So possible uses for our, our patient, so that systemic pain syndrome, again, we'll talk about, we'll get into much more detail about what might that patient look like, depression, right? So we have more and more reports and data suggesting that it can be effective for depression, just not in palliative or hospice care. Mucositis, this to me seems to be the flavor of the month now. We're seeing ketamine used more and more in our patients who have had neck cancer who are, who are getting that hamburger-like mouth from, from radiation and therapy. And then you also see it used for wound management um, um, as well um, in, in patients, possibly for dressing changes. So what is the mechanism of action of, of ketamine? An interesting one article actually says this is a pharmacological nightmare. They call it the pharmacological nightmare because it has so many different mechanisms. It's a dirty drug, okay? And a dirty drug offers both benefits as well as disadvantages. So it, very basically, we know ketamine is an N-methyl D-aspartate receptor antagonist. It's an NMDA antagonist. So we know it helps to decrease some of the excitatory reactions that, that, that are going on. It works by helping to um, um, block those um, receptors. So it inhibits those excitatory effects of glutamate and aspartate. We also know that it can interact with muscarinic receptors. It can interact with um, uh, your opioid receptors, right? uh, some other cholinergic receptors. So it has a lot of different effects. Maybe it has some anti-inflammatory effects. So we know that it has a lot of different ways that it can help with our symptoms that we're seeing for, for mood as well as for pain. What's interesting though, even though ketamine interacts with, with opioid receptors, naloxone will not reverse its analgesic effects. Okay? So naloxone does not reverse the analgesic effects of, of ketamine, which is why we know it has these, this other mechanism for how, for how it, it, it works. It's believed to really help with that central sensitization pain syndromes. Again, so we're painting that picture for what kind of patient might this look like. Central sensitization, severe pain is what we're thinking about with, with ketamine. Okay. So again, this pharmacokinetics of ketamine, exactly how does the body break down, how does it absorb ketamine, how does it excrete ketamine. Okay, so onset of action with ketamine, IV, it's very quick. We're using for anal analgesia. Again, we're talking about analgesic use here, potentially depression as well. Not, not for anesthesia, right? Anesthesia is going to be much quicker. We're going to be using sub-anesthetic doses for pain and other symptoms. So onset anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes when you're using a for analgesia. So you're going to know quite quickly, assuming you have an appropriate dose, if this is going to work or not. There's not a lot of waiting around with this medication. 
Duration of effect for IV use is somewhere between uh, 15 and 120 minutes. Again, this is what you'll read in case reports and literature. Experience suggests the more you use it, the effect may be become more pronounced and it may last longer duration uh, the more it's utilized. Okay, we look at that orally, onset maybe 30 to 60 minutes initially, right? Though the peak effect might take a little bit longer. Duration is very mixed. Um, mixed data with oral ketamine, again, we'll be using the IV formulation PO. Um, you commonly see it dosed every six to eight hours, which suggests that it might last about six to eight hours on its oral dose. And again, suggestive of the longer you use it, the longer it may last. It does have an active metabolite or ketamine that does contribute to some of the effect. It is a substrate of CYP3A4. In fact, 80% of ketamine goes, is metabolized by CYP3A4. So it's a heavy 3A4 um, medication. So you, you, might want, you want to be aware of that from a drug, drug interaction standpoint. So side effects, again, we're going to see some mirroring happening here with ketamine like lidocaine. Side effects are real, but at the doses we're going to be using them, usually not significant from a life-limiting or a significant, um, have to worry about real toxicity. So at one milligram per kilogram um, IV, um, which is not commonly used in hospital palliative care, there's going to be more anesthetic doses. You can see significant solminence, obviously it's an anesthetic, so you, it doesn't completely cause them to um, be knocked out, right, because it's a dissociative anesthetic, because they're still awake and aware, but they're very solminent. You can see tachycardia being a concern, excessive salivation, and most significant, you see those psychomimetic phenomena. So when you're using very high doses, folks can have really significant delirium, confusion, nightmares, all those things can happen at these doses. Again, we're not usually using these types of doses in, in our patients, but you want to be aware that that can be, um, that that can happen. And these are the start doses you might see in somebody for anesthesia. So low doses, um, side effects get more common as you increase the dose, and low doses are more common to what we tend to see in, in hospice and palliative care. So nausea, you can see some sedation, right, some drowsiness. Confusion, those dissociative type feelings are more common as you increase the dose. Um, so we have to be aware of that, and do we need to consider prophylacting our patients with medications to decrease that sensorium? And that is something we can, we can talk about when we get to the actual dosing. Hypertension can be transient in nature. In fact, one study suggested that one-third of patients transiently while infusing ketamine have blood pressure go greater than, than 180 over 100 or have a heart rate above 110. Okay, so you want to be aware that when you're doing a transient infusion of ketamine, you might see that, that blood pressure go up to a significant value, 180 over 100, or, or heart rate go above 110. So if we think about patient selection, you'll see that comes back into play there. So the question is, how do we manage these side effects? I think important, most important, and we're aware that these happen, they can occur, and if you have somebody who's at risk for these dissociative kind of feelings, Again, those delirium um, kind of feelings, um, uh, those paranoia types, you can consider giving a very low dose lorazepam or haloperidol in the magnitude of one half to one milligram prior to dosing, and that oftentimes will minimize the, this, this dissociative feeling from happening. 
So you can consider giving a prophylactic dose of, of lorazepam or haloperidol in the seat to help minimize. The risk is obviously those drugs have side effects as well, but the doses we discussed, you know, there, there's not a big concern there. Chronic use. So we have more data with chronic use of ketamine and palliative care. And this is, there, there is a reality. And some of this data from chronic use comes from our misusers and abusers. So those who have obtained this from the, from, the, from the wrong ways. But we know cystitis is real in chronic use. So you want to be aware that you can see cystitis happening in, in patients. And it might be a reason to stop it. Hepatobaloid toxicity has been reported in, um, in patients with long-term use. Uh, there has been reported neurocognitive impairment and decline with chronic high use of ketamine as well, and that comes from your abuse population. So being aware that there is concerns, there is reasons to caution its, its chronic use. Um, some people might even suggest there might be some liver toxicity associated with this, so monitoring, do we need to monitor LFTs? So chronic use does not come without your, your considerations in, in palliative and hospice care. Okay, so again, if we're going to be using ketamine, we've, t we've decided to, what's our, again, thinking, hey, what's our monitoring going to be? Those pillars of safety and efficacy are so important for our pharmacotherapy. So efficacy, when do we assess, how frequently do we assess the utilization uh, or the, if we're utilizing any, how often should we be assessing it? Again, it's going to depend upon the route of administration, topically, uh, for mucositis, for versus wound management, versus IV, versus um, uh, uh, using an oral. There's also been case reports of using it intranasally or rectally as, as well. So if you're us utilizing this through an IV or sub-Q administration, um, you, can be, you should be monitoring very uh, frequently. Uh, every 15 to 30 minutes at first. Again, and as the longer the patient's on it, you, you can space out the interval. But you want to definitely want to monitor frequently early, okay? What um, to, to monitor? Improvement in their functionality and pain scores if we're talking about pain. If we're looking at uh, mood, improvement in their, in their mood responses, which will be very quick with, with, this, with this agent, with, with ketamine. The other thing you want to be also assessing if you're thinking about um, their pain is uh, their other regimens, which we'll get to with safety. So again, monitoring those acute side effects like we talked about are real. They can be managed appropriately. Um, if you see somebody whose pain response improves dramatically, you may consider going ahead and, and adjusting their opioid dose down right off the bat. Can some clinicians say, let's go ahead and wait and see if it levels out? My experience, if somebody has a traumatic response, 50% or greater reduction immediately with ketamine, I'm starting to pull back their opioids. Because remember, one of the mechanisms we believe with ketamine is it helps to re reduce central sensitization. So when I'm working with my non-pain colleagues, I tell them, this essentially is going to help your opioid work better. So if you're helping your opioid work better, we need to pull back. If, and this is on the assumption that they have a dramatic response, let's pull back that opioid dose. And I have seen some really dramatic responses with ketamine. And we've talked about the efficacy being with 15 to 30 minutes. I have seen folks like that where you literally are beginning the infusion and you're talking to them all of a sudden you see the, and they begin to fall asleep on you at a very, very low dose. So we start pulling back their opioids immediately at, at that point in time. Okay. 
and then being aware of those psychomimetic effects because they can be very bothersome to patients as, as well. Okay, how is it available? It's available as an injectable solution. Um, thankfully, it's a pretty inexpensive medication. Um, so everything is derived from the injectable solution. So if you're using it um, in an in oral mucositis-based product, they take the IV and formulate it from that. So what I want you to be aware here, if you're utilizing ketamine off-labeled, and you're having it compounded into an oral solution for mucositis, or topically for wound management, or, for, or in a gel for pain management, what we're seeing in pharmacies is, many times insurances will approve the override for the medication, but they're not paying for the compounding fee. So just again, be aware if you hear all oh, my insurance covers ketamine, great. But what you're seeing sometimes is in, in not covering the compounding fee, so you want to be aware. We're finding more and more pharmacies who are utilizing ketamine uh, who, who will compound at a lower price. In the Columbus region area, we have some who are compounding an eight ounce bottle, which is 240 mLs of ketamine solution for mucositis for around 15 to 20 bucks. Tells you how inexpensive ketamine is. So you may kind of work with the pharmacy, hey, you know, they, they might be able to help you from that if, if you use them frequently. Oral solution stable for 30 days at room temperature. Compound formulations, if you're using for wound management or topical pain, just be careful. I love this range, anywhere from 0.5 to 20%, right? Um, I see case reports of 1 to 2%, case reports of 5% and 10%. The higher percentage we see, I've seen used, the more likely you see things like stinging and erythema and, and rash of happening, okay? So again, thinking proper patient selection. So how do I know when to utilize this, whether for pain, which is going to be this slide, or depression, which we'll get to in, in a few minutes. So a systemic analgesic, you want to think about escalating pain, poor response, intolerant to opioids. Again, we're assuming we've teased out that they don't have some sort of um, non-physical component to their pain that's contributing. We don't have a coping mechanism happening. So you have somebody whose opioids are rapidly escalating, they're not working well, they're having toxicity from their opioids, you want to consider ketamine um, utilization. Same thing as with, we talked about with lidocaine before, is you want to have a plan in place though before you use ketamine. Have your protocol in place, ha have your guidance in place. It's, Typically, we've seen in literature supports more effect for acute pain than chronic pain with ketamine. I'm not saying, again, that it doesn't work for chronic pain, but you see more bang for your buck in acute pain with ketamine than you do with, with chronic pain. Okay? Um, it has efficacy for both somatic and, and neuropathic pain. Maybe a little more suggestive for neuropathic pain, but also effective for somatic pain as well. And also that syndrome of hyperalgesia and, and allodynia. Okay, so we're thinking in palliative and hospice care, those patients rapidly escalating doses. Again, we're on a PCA and, and we're not getting the response we want. It's a good time to consider ketamine, again, assuming that our patient is a safe patient to think about. So safety. So be cautious with intracranial pressure. Okay, there's, there were some case reports that maybe we shouldn't use it, but we now have, it, have um, enough data to suggest, again, you have to be cautious with increasing intracranial pressure. It's no longer a strict contraindication. Psychiatric illness, history of delirium, makes sense. 
psychomimetic effects. So just again, be cautious. If you have a patient who has those histories, you may want to prophylact, definitively, definitively prophylact in with Ativan or, or Haldol in those patients. Pulmonary hypertension, deep complicated heart failure. Again, we know it can raise blood pressure and, and, and heart rate transiently. Again, significant hepatic dysfunction. This makes sense because 80% of it um, is broken down by CYP3A4. In scenarios where transient increases in hypertension can be detrimental. So what kind of patients can you think of where transient increases can be detrimental to your patients? Stroke. Excellent. Recent stroke patient. Brain tumors. Brain tumors. Recent MIs. Right, so again, this is not an absolute contraindication, but you better be very weighing the risk. And, and somebody in the audience pulled, pointed out stroke. Well, why is stroke important? Because guess what? Stroke patients often get central pain syndromes, and central pain syndromes are one of these kind of niches where ketamine seems to work really well in. So, how far out of the stroke are we talking about here? Right? And where do we sit on that pathway? That's why there's not a contraindication. Just be cautious. And that's why we sit down and talk about this as, as a team. Have this in your guidance document, your protocols laid out beforehand. Okay? So IV um, utilization in systemic pain. So you're going to see um, IV and oral dose broken down here. Again, I am not giving you this is the way you should do this because there is too much variability in the publications and resources out there. What I'm giving you are what is the most common done. So some folks will give IV boluses. Some folks will do this in a, in a challenge-based mechanism. Okay. So what they'll do is give somewhere between 0.1 and 0.3 milligrams per kilogram as an IV push dose, a bolus dose, and see how it works. So some folks will schedule it, Q6, Q8 hours. Uh, my training in my first, you know, 10, 11 years ago when I first used this in, in pokes, we did challenge doses. And I'm not suggesting that's what you do. So we, we wanted to see if Kenny was going to work before we would start up an infusion or anything like that. So we would give 5 milligrams IV push, wait 10, 15 minutes, 15, 15, 20 minutes. If it didn't work, we'd give 10. We would then go to 20 milligrams, and then finally we'd go to 30 milligrams. If we saw no effect with 30 milligram IV bolus dose, we did not proceed because the assumption was it wasn't going to work. Again, that's just one mode that, that, that folks give. Um, other times, just go straight forward with an, with an IV infusion. An IV infusion, there's multiple different ways to consider IV infusion. Do you go with just a milligram per hour start dose? If I'm going to try it, I'm going to do it, right? Five milligrams an hour. That's one approach. Um, other folks will do a milligram per kilogram dose to hourly approach. I'm not telling you there's one, one, white, one white way to do it, but these are things that, that you can find within the literature. Time to effect is within minutes to hours. You're going to know very quickly with ketamine if, if it's going to, to work. Time to peak is within hours. Uh, and it's kind of generic, but with my experience with ketamine, it works or it doesn't work. There's no, well, it meh, right. If, if that's your camp, it's not working. Okay, very recently we had a patient who was in, in the hospital who we started IV ketamine on and the uh, patient was like, you know, I'm not so sure that it's working. We were trying to determine if we were going to um, transition them um, to oral ketamine for long term. So I'm like, you know, if she's saying, eh, I'm not so certain, let's, we're not going to continue it because there's not a benefit there. Sure enough, the patient gets remitted this week and she said, you know what worked for me the best? 
was at Ivy Academy, and it was like, okay, well, the first time around she wasn't sure it worked, but now she's sure that it, that it works, right? Uh, but you're going to know, okay? And what's, what's considered a response? Most folks say when you look at what's been reported, about a 30% reduction is considered a significant response. And I would say, from my experience, when I've seen it, 30% is, is a reasonable response to achieve. I've seen 50% or higher response in patients as well. Okay, is what you do with that response is what's next. Do I reduce their opioids? Again, what's my pain in place if this works going forward? Assess their pain scores, assess their functionality. Do I need to adjust their underlying analgesics or opioids? And just be careful that, that you can develop tolerance with chronic use. It induces its own metabolism, ketamine does, so that way sometimes you can see increasing doses required with chronic use. Remember, chronic use also has its own side effects you have to worry about. So oral ketamine, again, oral ketamine is the same way. There's no one right way to start somebody in oral ketamine. Um, anywhere from a 0.5 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram divided in three to four daily doses. Typically speaking, you're not, you don't want to ever start somebody on 50 milligram, more than 50 milligrams per dose. Okay. My experience has usually been somewhere around the 10 to 20 milligrams every eight hours. It's usually a good starting point for most patients. Okay. How do you convert from IV? Um, years ago, the idea was 30 to 100% of your IV dose, and you roll that into a PO dose. Um, we've had, and so there was idea that you reduce, for some unknown reason, reduce the dose. Um, recent data suggests that you don't need to reduce the dose at all. You could just convert them from IV to PO one to one. The cautionary tale there is you still see people support going more no, no more than 50 milligrams every eight hours as they start dose. Okay, um, so just be aware when you're transitioning. I still caution a little bit when I go from IV to PO. I, I still take usually 50% and, and go no more than 100% of dose and, and go that. Um, orally, it can work within um, that 15 to 30 minutes. It can work quite quickly, but your peak effect can take longer to see. It can take weeks to see that peak effect. Okay, You want to be aware for utilizing oral ketamine that um, over, uh, or ketamine in general, if you're using it for a long time, you want to taper it slowly. Folks will withdraw from ketamine. So if you're using ketamine um, for any, any length of time, you want to taper it slowly. And if not, they can withdraw. Okay. So questions about IV or oral ketamine for systemic pain. Okay, so mucositis. Uh, this is definitely an area that uh, in the last year or so I've seen a, a renewed interest in, in oral ketamine for mucositis. It's compounded, and this is just one formulation as a four milligram per ml oral solution. They would take five mls and swish it for one minute and expectorate out every three hours as needed. So it's suggested as to not swallow the dose um, to minimize risk for systemic side effects. That it's suggested that you switch and spit, right? Because again, systemic absorption. You figure four milligrams per ml, if they swallowed five ml, they're getting 20 milligrams a dose, which would be a therapeutic dose enough to see some side effects, okay? 
the effect is very quickly. It, it, it happens within, within minutes. Um, side effects should be minimal unless they mistakenly swallow the mouthwash. Okay, so um, this is one that uh, we're seeing more and more use in our head and neck patients are those who are getting radiation um, um, utilization. So if that classic lidocaine is not working, uh, the ketamine is a consideration. Effects up to about three hours. Again, uh, the assessment is going to be very similar as before. Pain reduction, um, are you able? Because my experience with head and neck patients who are getting active treatment is they can require, during their active treatment, require significant doses of opioids. So being aware that if you're giving them something that work, is working locally, we've had, we've had some patients actually been able to reduce their, their background opioids because the ketamine is so effective for that, for that pain. So just be aware. And not likely needing to taper because they shouldn't be swallowing it. You know, if they accidentally swallow a dose or two, do we need to panic? No. If they happen to swallow a dose here or there, they don't need to call Poison Control Center and get it stripped back or anything like that. They don't need to be going down that road. Just we don't want them swallowing on, on a routine basis, okay, for, for oral mucositis. So wound management. Um, so, so you have ketamine used topically. Again, thinking about neuropathic pain that's very specific to an area. And then you also have ketamine that can be used for wound management. So the idea is you see success with a gel or maybe even spray. You apply it to the, to the entire wound bed prior to management. Onset is approximately 10 to 15 minutes, possibly up to an hour, depending upon the vehicle that's utilized. So the idea is because, remember, ketamine is that dirty drug. It works on receptors and a lot of different receptors. It works on receptors everywhere. So the idea is, can I manage that patient's pain locally versus using large doses of oral analgesics like opioids that have a lot of side effects? It has been tried in many different dosage forms. Again, be aware it's very expensive. So your insurance may approve the drug itself but reject the compounding fee. So just be aware of that. There aren't any current high-quality studies for wound management in ketamine. Just be aware, though, you can have systemic absorption that peaks about 6 to 10 hours if you're applying large amounts to large wounds. I don't know clinically what that translates to, being completely honest. It's been reported that they can detect ketamine levels in, in, in the blood after absorption from wounds. Okay. Is it enough to attribute to side effects or, or a systemic analgesic effect? We don't know, but just be aware you can see some systemic effect, okay? So depression, this is the new kid on the block for ketamine, right? So depression um, has been noted um, with ketamine for a while. They noted with improvement in pain, their move improved as well. Uh, the mechanism is less well understood uh, with, with depression. Uh, typically what you're going to do, what started off with an IV infusion, and this is more standardized, is a half milligram per kilogram infused anywhere over 30 to 60 minutes. A lot of studies report 40 minutes. I don't know why exactly 40 minutes. But at a dose of a half milligram per kilogram over 30 to 60 minutes, your peak concentrations in the blood are between 70 and 200. The peak concentrations required as an anesthetic are between 1,000 and 2,000. So you can see the doses we're utilizing, peak doses are much lower than you would need for anesthesia. So the depression doses are quite low. Um, there are possibilities of giving that exact same dose orally 
It's been reported less often, but it has been tried with some success in your palliative care and hospice patients. Again, mechanism's not fully understood. How long does it take to work? Hours to days for depression effect. Okay, and, and how long does it last? Do we need to repeat dosing? Well, this is what, again, we're finding more out. We know that when it is utilized on a scheduled basis, two or three times a week, that the effect seems to last for long periods of time. It can last for weeks, up to months after that last dosing is given. If you give it as a one-time dose and you wait and watch, the, the depression symptoms seem to come back more quickly. So there is data to suggest repetitive dosing makes the effect last a little bit longer. You do want to be aware um, with, with um, ketamine in general that you may want to consider dosing ketamine on ideal body weight in your obese patients. There has been some reports that those, uh, those uh, hemodynamic effects on blood pressure and heart rate are, were more common in obese patients getting higher doses. So be aware you may want to use ideal body weight when utilizing ketamine. So for depression, the effects are quick. The reduction is usually significant. So the idea is, you know, when would I consider utilizing depression management of uh, ketamine for depression? In our hospice patients, potty care patients, and those folks who maybe their prognosis is, is quite poor, they're going to have less than a month or so to live because our classic antidepressants take that long to work. Thinking about hospice and palliative care, if they've got significant depression and it's not related to fatigue, so many of our patients are depressed because of fatigue and they can't function, again, think about, think about ketamine. It's, it's definitely worth a consideration. It's often viewed as a last-line option, as it should be, but it is something that's important to keep in, in our back pocket. Informed consent. It's interesting. Should we, should we have to get informed consent from our patients before using ketamine for depression? This comes from the psych world. This comes from, there, are, there is data in the psych world. In fact, there was a wonderful review published in just JAMA um, just earlier, late last month about um, ketamine in the, in the psych world. And they suggest for their patients getting informed consent because of the risk of ketamine. Palliative hospice care, I'm not sure it's necessary, but it's, it is a, is, is a consideration. Um, anecdotally, I've seen ketamine for depression used maybe 20, 25 times. And like pain, it works or it doesn't. I've seen it work in about half the patients and work pretty well. Other half the patients, it, did, it didn't work. So my own little bubble of ketamine for depression, again, not a large N, 25 patient, I've seen about half the patients respond and respond well to it. Okay. So questions about ketamine depression? All right, moving on. So we're going to go through some patient cases. So back to our patient here. This is a 35-year-old male who needs treatment for comfort care, transitioning to pain, for, for pain, diarrhea, possibly some depression as well, transitioning to, to inpatient hospice. Diagnosis is HIV, severe colitis, and chronic kidney disease. Prognosis is weeks to months. Blood pressure and heart rate are, are there for you. Maintenance meds have been stopped on fentanyl and hydromorphone. So the question is, is this a patient you would consider utilizing ketamine? If so, how would you give it and what might you do before you give it? 
Mr. Orr might need a pastor on the mic if you have a good answer. So let's start with question one. From a, from a symptom standpoint, does he have symptoms that might, does the patient might, that benefit from the administration of ketamine? Yeah. The answer, so the answer is yes. What symptoms? Pain and depression. So this was a, and this is a spinoff of a patient that I've helped care for recently. And what actually triggered me was the depression. Had profound depression in this patient. Profound depression. And nothing was working for his depression. So this is what kind of kicked, this was kind of made me more aware that we should consider this for this patient. So in reality, this patient did have some concerns of having some blood pressures that were running in the, as this patient does, high 130s, low 140s, 90s, with some heart rate that was a little elevated. So we've talked about it makes sense to consider it, but from a safety standpoint, does this contraindicate use of ketamine for this patient? No, no because does he have anything that puts him at risk for a, a transient elevation of blood pressure? Not that we can see. There's nothing here that's going to put this patient at risk for a, a for stroke, heart attack, or something like that. So can we justify an, a, a risk of elevated blood pressure, even if he's borderline low high? And the answer is yes. So the question is now, how would you dose this? Would you go pain dose? Would you go depression dose? I think the answer is you're right either way. But for practice standpoint, how would you address posting this patient? Go with pain first. Go with pain dose first? Okay, so do you want to give it oral or IV? So the answer now is, let's do the pain dose. So do you want to give it IV or oral? Do it IV, excellent. So how do you want to give it? Bolus or infusion? I've done infusion. Do so an infusion. Okay. I that's just an experience. An experience. So participant from the audience that experience or experience has been done a five milligram infusional rate. So let's go that route. Let's say we go with a five milligram infusional rate. When do we assess? And how do we know when it's okay to increase the dose assuming the patient's tolerating it well? Assess often. Assess quickly. Assess within quickly. Minutes, within minutes. Um, to see efficacy, see if there's any side effects. You're going to hit your peak in hours, so you could consider changing doses hours later. Good. So, so the comment from the audience was, we're going to assess very quickly. We know it's going to work very quickly for their pain. Mood will see some effects as well. So we're going to be assessing safety and efficacy quite quickly, readily, within minutes, within hours. So again, traditionally what you'll see is folks are going to they'll give us some time to kind of level out in the body, maybe 8, 12 hours before you, maybe even 24 hours before you consider increasing the dose. And typically what you would see is anywhere from a 50 to 100% dose increase. So maybe you go to 7.5 milligrams an hour, maybe you go to 10 milligrams an hour. But each time you typically want to give it you know, 8 hours, from my experience, on the minimum end before you go increasing the dose. Um, but you want to give it some time before it kind of levels out in, in the body. So if it works, then your question is, depending upon the prognosis, do we transition to oral or not? And that's going to be dictated upon whether they're going to be staying in the IPU, going home, but the good thing is we know we can transition to, transition to PO. Okay? So case number two, 61-year-old male needs treatment for severe mucositis. Tonsillal cancer, and this is again, an, this is a, a spinoff of some, some real patients, right? 
His prognosis is years to curable and very likely curable for this patient, but still it, uh, going through significant therapy. I mean, the head and neckers are oftentimes very, very curable, but these folks get mutilated with, with treatment, um, at least from my, my experience in, in seeing them. So history of hypertension, smoking, and BPH. Medications are listed for you. Um, some PR and hydromorphone and, and those that are listed. So, is this a patient that would make sense to consider trying ketamine? Yes. Yes. In yes. what dosage form? The four milligram per mL topical solution. Good. Would there be any consideration? Like, was there, was there any hesitancy at all from a safety standpoint? Not for that formulation. Not for that formulation. But some of you may have picked up on. Well, he has a history of. BPH, does that hypertension, does that put them at risk for maybe cystitis one way or another or some of the symptoms, hypertension? Assuming the patient is using this dosage form with a swish and spit, even if they occasionally swallow a dose or two, is the concern going to be significant? And the answer is no. Um, and this is a patient, um, again, obviously things change for HIPAA and all that sort of things, but a patient we were able to reduce their hydromorphone dose a little bit because of the effectiveness of, of, the, of the oral ketamine. Again, ketamine, in my experience, like I know it's like punting is very generic, it works or it doesn't. With oral mucositis, same thing, it works or it doesn't. Patients come back wanting more, they say I tried it and I stopped it. I will encourage ketamine when it's being used topically, whether it's for oral mucositis or in a wound or that, you do want to give it some uses, some repetitive uses before you give up on it. Don't give it one-time use and, and quit on it. You want to give it a chance to work. And there's patients where we've, we've used it topically um, for pain, localized pain. Those folks who come back and, and I can encourage them for a couple weeks, they will notice an effect. It's those folks, I tried it for two or three times and it didn't work and they give up on it, okay? So patient case three, we have a 56-year-old female with uh, severe pain, diagnosis of metastatic lung cancer to bone, prognosis is weeks, history of polysubstance abuse as well as, as COPD, morphine CAD, again a CAD, a continuous inventory drug delivery device, same as PCA, just smaller, at 30 milligrams an hour, 50 milligram bolus every 15 minutes as needed, lorazepam, one milligram, BID, prednisone, as well as albuterol. So. Is this a patient for which you might consider the administration of ketamine? Think about it. So again, we have severe pain, you're going to think about it. And what about this patient's picture tells you she, that she is in severe pain? High, high use. High dose opioids, so 30 milligrams of IV morphine an hour plus that infusion tells us she has, might have significant pain. At this kind of dose, do you worry about potentially opioids um, causing some sensitization. Um, oftentimes it's hard to know when you, to see um, some of the underlying effects of, of high dose opioids of causing essential sensitization or hypersensitivity. It's not until it becomes very obvious that we often see it, but this kind of dose, morphine is likely causing some sensitization to this patient. So you could argue ketamine might be a consideration for this patient. Um, does her history of polysubstance abuse concern you? It depends on how recent was it, what substances was it. Good. So we want to know how recent, what was it, but if this patient has a prognosis of weeks, very likely 
we're going to have them in some sort of, while we're doing this, in some sort of focused healthcare arena, hospital, inpatient palliative care, inpatient uh, hospice environment. So it's there, we're aware of it, but I wouldn't preclude us from using ketamine. So in this patient, the presumption is we're going to use a pain dose. We're going to be using, likely utilizing a higher dose. So the advantage is patients are already on lorazepam, which might help us to minimize the risk of those psychomimetic effects. So the question is, when we assess this patient, this would be a patient for my history, I would want to be there checking on quite regularly, because if it works, my suspicion is let's watch that, that, that morphine dose. We might need to come down on it. It's not a guarantee, but if it works, I would want to be assessing very frequently to watch that morphine dose. Okay. So summary, proper identification for ketamine is, is key. I, I think what we've answered, I don't think ketamine is the flavor of the month. I think ketamine is here to stay. Is that something we're going to be using quite frequently? Not necessarily, but common for us palliative care and hospice practitioners for us to know. And, and I'll step away, back too from it and just say, this is a medication that I've had enough experience with. I know how it behaves. I know what it looks like but still enough that I respect it every time I utilize ketamine, I go back, I look at my policies, my procedures, I look at my dose ranges, and I just re-familiar myself with what I should be looking at. Because I give it enough healthy respect to know that, I, uh, that yes, we use it maybe every a couple times a month, but I still want to make sure that I'm setting back. So even though I could go and, and make recommendations or the team could use it, we still fall back on our policies and procedures to make sure we're falling in line with its use. Okay, so monitoring for its efficacy and side effects. Look for, for future data, particularly as it comes to depression. It's really exciting that this is being used outside of the palliative world for depression as well. So again, if we're looking at, we had the lidocaine infusional talk before. I think ketamine is definitely something you would consider before utilization of lidocaine. And, and enough experience is out there, enough annual reports that is, is ketamine in these patients with significant symptoms, pain, and depression, where nothing else is working, it's worth a healthy discussion to consider its use. Okay? So questions about ketamine. Yes. I have two unrelated questions. Okay. First question is, is there anything for like the topical uh, for mucositis, is there anything that would push you one way or the other of ketamine versus lidocaine, or is it more patient preference, provider okay. experience? Excellent. So the question is, utilizing like a magic mouthwash formulation versus ketamine, is there a consideration for what I'd go with first? Traditionally, um, uh, I would say magic mouthwash just from ease of use. Um, even though it's oftentimes not covered by insurance, it's still relatively inexpensive. By the time we're getting the consults, they have usually been through magic mouthwash. If magic mouthwash has not been effective, I, I, don't, I don't see the downside to trying ketamine, assuming they can afford a $15 to $20 um, out-of-pocket expense. That answers your question? It, yes. Okay. My second question is um, we've had experience with patients with sickle cell disease who are on, in their protocol, a ketamine infusion. And my kind of operational question is oftentimes they're already, they, they say they come in, they come on on a 20 milligram an hour dose. Is there, is that okay to do or do you need to start at the five and ramp up to that 20? So this is a very good, very specific question to a specific patient population with, with, that we see oftentimes in palliative care and that's our, our, that's our sickle cell patients. 
sickle cell patients, we come in, they come in in a crisis, oftentimes requiring large amounts of resources, including opioids and other analgesics. Some institutions have implemented sickle cell plans. So they come in, when the patient comes in a crisis, they are put on these predefined order sets. X amount of, of you know, 100 mics of fentanyl an hour, plus whatever it is, their bolus, plus this ketamine, IV and infusional dose. And oftentimes those doses are already above that five milligram an hour. I would say in that instance, for that specific patient with history, it's pr probably okay to start at that higher dose. In a patient who's not tried it before, I would definitely, even in that same thing, I would try it before and then get a history of knowing that that's what the patient always does work for that patient. So I would say it's probably okay in those unique patients that we, we have folks that come in once or twice a month with crises and we know very well. I think it's reasonable if they say 10 or 15 milligrams an hour of ketamine because we've done it time and time again. I would make sure it's been done a time or two and their clinical scenario looks the same, um, but I wouldn't make it common practice. So other questions about ketamine? Special K? All right, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum. <laughs>